In our scriptures this morning, it says that Jesus made proclamation to the spirits in prison. And Martin Luther said, who in the world knows what that means? So good luck, pastor. That's one of the hazards when you teach through the Bible every single sentence that you run into stuff where you would rather just kind of lightly trip over and keep going and focus on the good stuff. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But there is a reason why that's there. Peter is showing us that we are going to suffer if we do what is right. We are going to suffer for doing what is right. And Jesus is the great example of this. Jesus is also the example of how to successfully go through life in this fallen, wicked world. And the way he shows us and the whole point of Peter in writing this epistle is its humility towards God now and its glory afterwards. And we've got three examples this morning that show us that this is true. Humility now, glory afterwards. So we're reading in 1 Peter 3 from verse 18. And he says here, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, Jesus humbled himself to do the will of God, and he suffered, and he is glorified right now. That's the context. Peter says in verse 17, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. The first thing we want to notice is that he existed in the form of God. He knows what it's like to be unlimited, to be the one at the top, 
the one who gives the commandments. And everybody else has to obey those commandments. There is no one above him. And yet he didn't regard equality with God something that you hold on to and say, no, I got to stay God. I got to stay at the top. This is the best part. I'm not going to lose this. Are you crazy? But he emptied himself. Of all those rights and privileges of being God, and he took the form of a slave. And he was born as a human being. And as a human being, Jesus did only right. I've suffered for doing wrong, and you've suffered for doing wrong. But Jesus never did wrong, ever. Every second, every minute, Every day, every week, every year, Jesus did only what was right. And still he suffered for it. You know, he healed people, he fed people, he taught what was right. When his disciples were arguing about who's the greatest, he fills up a basin with water and he washes their feet. That's a slave's job, but that's who he is. He's the slave of God and he's the slave of his disciples. And he's washing Peter's feet and Peter goes, don't do that. And he goes, you know what? If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Okay, 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 okay. Wash everything. Well, just your feet. It's all you need right now. He humbled himself. And ultimately, he suffered for our sakes to bring us to God. That's the meaning of the will of his master. This is what he accomplished, serving God the Father Every single one of us, he has served us as a slave. He humbled himself to bring us to God. And it worked, didn't it? He brought you to God. And this is right. He did right in dying for us. Greater love has no man than this that a man laid down his life for his friends, and Jesus did that. He did the ultimate. There is nothing greater, and he did it. So, because Jesus humbled himself, God has glorified him. You notice in verse 21, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the glorification of Jesus. Raised from the dead, never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And he died 
with his earthly body, but he was raised in a heavenly body. Died in weakness, raised in power. And he's raised in glory. He has gone into heaven on his own righteousness. He has been exalted over angels, principalities, powers, whatever spiritual authority there is. Jesus is above that. And he has the name above all names. There is no name higher. You can't even put a name alongside him. He is unique and the most high, and every knee is going to bow before him. This is part of his glory. Your knee is going to bow. So will all the people who have ever lived, all the angels, all the demons, and even Satan will get down on his knees and say with his own mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So, Jesus humbled himself first. And then, after this life, it's all glory. This is the principle that Peter's talking about. And it's expressed several times in the Proverbs. Let me read a few to you. Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. This is a principle that even applies to the Lord Jesus when he becomes a human being. This is what it means to be human. Now, here's a second example of humility in our scriptures this morning, and that's Noah. Peter brings up Noah. Out of nowhere, it seems. What is Noah doing in 1 Peter chapter 3? But there he is. We have to deal with this. Now, this is what it says about Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 9, it says, This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. When you walk with God, you got to acknowledge a few things, like you're God and I'm not. And because he is God and you are not, you humble yourself and you walk with God. That is the only way to walk with God, is in humility. All right? Now, the time of Noah was when, when men lived for centuries. 
That's what the Bible says. So Noah lived 600 years before the flood. And someone did calculations with the birth rates and the longevity of men back then. And they tried to figure out how many people would be on the earth at the time of the flood. And they came up with a figure somewhere around 7 billion people. About the population of the planet right now. 7 billion people on the planet. It says in Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, in these days, it says that there was wickedness and violence on the earth. The thoughts of every man was only evil continually. Only evil continually. And that means there's violence on the earth. Oppression. It is dog eat dog. Devil take the hindmost. People getting oppressed. People losing their rights. Unspeakable wickedness. So much that God doesn't even write it down. He just says they were wicked. And you can imagine the limits when it's only evil continually, 24 hours a day. Seven billion people thinking about how am I going to get what I need? Who can I take from? Because that's really the essence of wickedness is taking. You're not giving life, you're taking life. And there's a lot of violence. Well, God says at a certain point, I'm going to give the earth 120 years. And he gives Noah the task of building this ark. And it was a huge ship. It was something that would barely fit inside of Wembley. The height of it was 45 feet, something like a four-story building. And it had 1.88 million cubic feet of space. You know that, that um, the first ship built larger than the ark was built in the 1880s. So for thousands of years, there was no uh, structure, ship built bigger than the ark. It was enormous. And it would have taken probably 120 years to build. But God says, after this, the end. In 2 Peter, 
Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. And Noah let the world know that God was going to destroy the world for its wickedness. Now is the time to repent and humble yourself before God. Now that is always the right thing to do. Do you know that there's never a wrong time to repent? And the time to repent is right now. But that's not what 7 billion people did. They continued to do evil only continually. They were disobedient, says Peter in our scripture right now. And it means unpersuadable. I am not changing my mind. You make it as dramatic as you want to, Noah. Here's the smallest recording in the world playing My Heart Breaks for you. Keep talking, Noah. Pat, 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 pat. Oh, you're so cute. And Noah finished 120 years of humility in the face of arrogance. Can you imagine the contempt and the ridicule and the disdain of seven billion people? How Noah became a byword and a proverb for a nut of the worst kind, a religious nut. Oh, I'm Noah. I'm building a big wooden box. It's the end of the world. Har, har, har. Can you imagine when you become the meme for seven billion people? Really? You alone are right and seven billion people are wrong? Who do you think you are? Who are you making yourself out to be? The mouthpiece of God. You know what God is saying? Blah, 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 blah. Keep talking. Really? A flood? Gee, Noah, why don't you build that thing closer to water? There's no water out here. Oh, well, keep building. See, it's really easy to make fun of somebody and put them down, take the mickey on them, and really say, hey, who do you think you are? In other words, you're being arrogant. You're right, and all of us over here are wrong, huh? Who do you think you are? So... Eventually, I think they just kind of ignored him. I don't have time for this. And I can even imagine somebody saying, you know what, I would order a hit on you and just kill you entirely. But frankly, I don't even want to put that much into a hit contract. You know, the best favor I can do for you is just to say, keep on building, pal. Do whatever God is telling you to do. Imagine how wearying it is to be the only guy doing what you're doing and seven billion people and every single one of them is just despicable and gross. You're the only one walking with the Lord. Can you imagine how that grates and 
rubs and it's just going the wrong way. How wearying that must be. And nobody is saying, good job, Noah. Keep on plugging. There's nobody on the planet to do that. Now, how you endure in a situation like that is by depending upon God. Did you know that? Because when you depend upon God, that somehow nourishes your heart. There's a direct connection. Some of you may have noticed that when you are far apart from God, something wrong happens in your life. And you find yourself going, God, I've been terrible. There's no reason for you to bless me, but I'm really in trouble. Please bless me. And somehow God blesses you and nourishes your heart. And you think to yourself, gee, what a dope I am. I could do this all the time. But then you don't. You would find yourself marvelously nourished inside if you did that every day. And you know what would happen? Maybe those whacked out circumstances wouldn't change all that much. But you wouldn't be pounded by them. You would have stability in your life and you would have inwardly what you need to keep on going. Trusting in God nourishes your soul. That's a principle. And that's how Noah endured 120 years of being the stupid poster boy. The only guy on the planet who thinks we're all going to be destroyed. You know, if people reject you, it doesn't matter because that's not who you are. Who you are is what God thinks. And again, that's how Noah endured. And you know, he showed his family the right way and they followed him. His sons and their wives could see the quality of Noah's life and compare it to seven billion gross people and say, who do I want to be like? Who's right about this? Is my dad just a whacked out religious nut? Or is what he's saying true? Even though seven billion people think he's a dope. Who's right? And how do you find out? Well, you know, they looked at the quality of Noah's life as he walked in humility with God. And that always brings out love and mercy and forgiveness because everything good comes out of humility. And everything wicked comes out of arrogance and pride. And they looked at his life and they were convinced 
My dad is right because he walks with God and there's love, and I know the difference. I've read shoulders with some of the seven billion, and they are the awfulest people, and they lie like crazy. And I've been ripped off so much in these guys. My, my dad, I know he won't do that. My dad is the real thing. And I know there's a God. Kind of funny that it's Father's Day today, isn't it? I didn't plan it. But here we are. So they all got on the boat with Noah. Right? Before anything happened. He went into that boat a week before the flood. Now, do you feel like a dope? We're in a boat. Here are the animals. No water. Seven days of self-isolation. Hi, everybody in the quarantine hotel. We're looking at you. Are they worried maybe that maybe this is just weird and it's not going to happen? Of course, we did see the animals get on the ark in pairs, male and female. You ever seen anything like that before in your life? I don't think so. Now, you know, in Genesis, later on, God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he told Lot, you better tell anybody you have in this city to get out. Because I'm going to do this. And he went to his sons-in-law, who married two of his daughters. And he says, the Lord is going to destroy this city. You need to get out of here. And they say, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? What God? Which God? God. You know, God, God. He's going to destroy the city. Are you crazy? He couldn't even convince them. You know what? Being in Sodom shut Lot's mouth. And his own son-in-laws could not see God enough in his life that they would believe him. God's going to destroy this city in the morning. Really? I got business appointments all day long. I can't, I can't stop for that. Sorry. Nice try, Noah. So in the morning, Lot's son-in-laws died. But Noah's family looked at his life and said, this guy walks with God. This is worth it. He is a loving, humble person. I know that's right. And see, one day, God blessed the humble and he condemned the wicked. One day. It was the 600th year of Noah's life was the 17th day of the month. Noah wrote it all down. The fountains of the deep were broken up. And on that day, underground sources of water that God put there for this time and day and season, they were broken up with such force the continents moved. And water gushed out for the next 40 days. Actually, 
the fountains of the deep were stopped at day 110. And water gushed out to the extent that all the mountains were covered. And the ark had a draft of 15 cubits. And it never scraped a mountain. Everybody on the planet died. Seven billion people died on one day. And eight people went through that judgment because they were inside the ark. And it's because they were humble. That's what saved them. Does everybody get that? Now there's a third example of humility now, glory later. And it's these spirits in prison who died on that day. The opposite way to express humility now, glory later, is in Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Where these spirits are now, says prison, in Hebrew, it's referred to as Sheol, the place of the dead. And I used to think that Sheol was kind of a neutral place. It's like if you go there, it's like, okay, you're dead, but is it really that big a deal? Because I know that the lake of fire that burns forever, that's really fearsome. So maybe if you wind up in Sheol, it's not so bad. But as I've read through the Bible over the years, I've come to the conclusion that Sheol is not a picnic. It's no place you want to go. Because it says in Psalm 88, verse 5, Forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. And they are cut off from your hand. He says, you have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. So in Sheol, it says that God remembers you no more, but that means remembers you for good no more. He remembers you for wrath. And it says your wrath have afflicted me with all your waves. It's like billows and floods of wrath right there in Sheol. From Ezekiel 32, which is a chapter well worth reading, it's a place of weakness and shame. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 32 from verse 29. There also in Sheol is Edom, its kings and all its princes, who for all their might are laid with those slain by the sword. They will lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. There also are the chiefs of the north, all of them, 
and all the Sidonians who in spite of the terror resulting from their might in shame went down with the slain. So they lay down uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. The point is, here are all these fabulous men, chiefs, kings, powerful guys who caused terror in the land of the living. These are the tough guys who go around and terrify people and get their way. I've read stories of the ancient kings and the guys that would go out to war, that they would come to a city and say, I want 10 years of taxes right now. And if I don't get it, I'm going to sell all of you into slavery and take it all anyway. Here, here's 10 years of taxes right now. Because they're tough. But when they finally die, they go right down next to people that they killed with the sword. And now it's weakness and shame and not a blessed thing they can do about it. So that's a sample of what you can read in Ezekiel chapter 32. All of these nations who were terrors in their day and now they bear their shame because they're weak. They're laid in the pit. There's not a thing they can do about it. They bear their shame. And in fact, when Satan himself goes down to the pit, this is what's going to be said of him, Isaiah 14. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth, It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps has been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. Even the devil is going to go down in weakness and shame to Sheol. Now, Peter says here that after Jesus was crucified, he went in his spirit to Sheol and he made proclamation to these seven billion spirits. You know, we're not even told here what Jesus said, and it's useless to try to figure it out. Because when God doesn't tell you, he doesn't tell you. But we can make some educated guesses about this. Are you interested? All right. We know that Jesus did not preach the gospel to these spirits. Lay that one to rest. There is a word that could have been used here, and it expressly means preaching the gospel. But that word is not used here, all right? So there's the first argument, but the second is in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, 
where it says it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. And if Jesus had preached the gospel to them, it would contradict his own word, which he is not going to do. So, in this scripture, there is not one hint or an idea of purgatory or a second chance for people who have died. These seven billion spirits made their decision while they were alive during that last 120 years. And now they're in Sheol, the place of the dead where God forgets you for blessing. There is no more blessing. Now, when he made proclamation, Jesus did the will of the Father. He never did anything apart from the Father. So what Jesus is proclaiming here is the will of the Father. And what Jesus told them is the truth because he is the truth. Whatever Jesus said to these seven billion spirits, it was the truth. And so I personally think there was nothing encouraging in that proclamation at all. There is nothing encouraging for anybody who ends up in Sheol. Does everybody get that? Now, the spirits might have said, okay, here we are, what are you doing here? Okay, fair enough, we're dead. We rejected the word of God. We were arrogant. We're dead. What are you doing here? And it could be that Jesus made proclamation about himself. Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, nor for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. What am I doing here? Says Jesus. I'm fulfilling scripture. And God is not going to forget me. And I am not going to undergo decay. And I'm going to leave here. And I'm going to ascend into heaven and I am going to judge the living and the dead. I'll see you later. And so these spirits in prison awaiting judgment prove 
that the flip side of the coin is true. Arrogance first, shame and destruction afterward. Now what Peter shows is that the only way through this life and through judgment is humility now, glory afterwards. He says baptism is like the Ark of Noah. There is also an antitype there, he says in verse 21. He's comparing it to the Ark. And he says, which now saves us, baptism. He says baptism is like the Ark of Noah. And he says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not like you go into the water, this is going to save you. Some people think baptism is something magic. If the right guy puts you into the water, you're going to be okay. That's why I don't baptize some people. Because they're not going to follow Jesus. And I don't want to make them think because licensed what's-his-face stuck you in the water Everything's okay. I could still go out and get drunk. He says it's the appeal to God for a good conscience. That's the way to translate that next bit in verse 21. The reality of baptism is you have asked God for a good conscience that does not accuse you of evil. And the way to get that conscience is to trust in Jesus. That he died for your sins and a righteous penalty has been paid to God. And you ask God to cleanse you and accept you in the name of Jesus. And then you are baptized into Christ. More than just a water baptism. It's the Spirit baptizing you into Christ and you are in Christ just as eight people were in the ark. And as you abide in Christ, you are going to go through judgment just as Noah and his three sons and their wives went through the judgment of the flood. So when you receive Christ and you're in Christ, you are not going to Sheol. Your citizenship is in heaven. And that's where you're headed. You belong there because you're in Christ. And Christ is in heaven. So, here's the punchline. As we abide in Christ, we're going to learn humility because His Spirit abides in us. And His Spirit is going to transform the way we think and the way we act to be like Jesus. And that means we're going to be humbled. We're going to think humbly. We're going to be humble. Even for the Son of God, it's humility first and glory second. Isn't that amazing? So we really are going to think 
like Jesus. We really are going to act like Jesus. And for Jesus, it wasn't humility every once in a while when he had to. Because when you're God at the top, anywhere from God is way down. Even angels are way down there. But he went below angels. Here's Jesus. He just got born as a baby. Can you imagine? The creator of the universe needs a diaper change. That's humble. He needed a father. God gave him one. And a mom. He went missing as a kid. And his parents said, don't do that again. He says, okay. God got admonished by his parents. He worked around the house. He worked with his dad in the business. Can you imagine? So for Jesus, it was all humility, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 33 years. Humility. So if we're going to be in Christ, we're going to learn humility. That's what life's about. So look, why did Peter put this here? Why does it break everybody's brain when they look at this and go, what did he say to 7 billion people? I don't think it was written for the 7 billion. It's too late for them. These things were written for us on whom the ends of the ages has come. This is for us. Jesus is the example of how to live on this planet and go through judgment. You do it humbly, trusting in God. Here's how to know if you're on the right track. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? If you know you've done that, that's how you start. If you've never done that, you must surrender your life consciously to God and just say, you be the Lord. I want to humble myself before you. And realize that's what it's about from here on in. He has to be the Lord. If he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. So you say, okay, Lord, and then you mean it. Not just the name you throw on, Lord, 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 Lord. Didn't we do miracles in your name, Lord, Lord? He says, no, I never knew you. So it really has to be Lord. Then here's the next step. Are you being humbled? Are you learning that you're not as good as you think you are? This is shocking. 
What? Me? I'm speechless. What do, you, what do you mean I'm not as good as I think I am? There's the evidence. Sacred bovine. But you're going to find it out all the time. You're not as good as you would like to think you are. In fact, you're a lot worse. The half of it has not been told you yet. It's coming. Day after day, you're going to get all these messages. You're not as good as you think you are. Crushing. Disintegrating. And then, at the very same time, God still loves you. You start thinking, why doesn't he, why, why doesn't he hate me? Why does he love me? There's nothing about me to love. And he loves me anyway. This is nervous. This is anxiety. This is like, does he love bald people? Maybe that's it. He just loves them. No, he doesn't. There's no reason why God loves me except the fact that God is good and has nothing to do with me. And I get to receive the love of God knowing I don't deserve it. So here's what's going to happen in your life. You are going to shrink amazingly and God's going to get bigger and bigger. You think, why does he love me? I'm not worth his love. But he loves me anyway with everlasting love that never started and will never end. And nothing can separate me from his love. It's going to humble you because you know I'm not like that. I don't love anybody like that. I only love me. I don't even love me that well. Because I sin. And if I was smarter, I wouldn't sin. But I sin, so I'm stupid. And yet God loves me. And I tell you, this grinds you. And you realize, I don't even know what true goodness is. I'm just starting to begin to understand how much God loves me and how good he is to me. And I don't deserve any of it. If that's happening, you're on your way. Good. Fabulous. If God's doing this in your life, then you can have a reasonable expectation that God's going to bring you safely to heaven. Because you're not saying, hey, God, doing you a favor, coming to heaven, make way, here I come. You're just going to go, God, if you just get me to heaven, I will throw my crown in front of your throne and bless you for the first 10,000 years. No big problem here. Woo! <laughs> you saved me. You saved me. You saved me. Thank you. What did I do? Now, you know, the interesting thing about humility is every good thing comes out of being humble before God. Mercy, because you know what it's like to receive mercy. You're going to give it. And love, 
and patience and endurance and all those things that are good come out of humility. And you're going to see all the impatience and anger and all the wickedness that comes out of thinking about yourself and pride and arrogance. You're going to say, oh God, have mercy on me. Cleanse me. Of all my pride and wickedness, cleanse me. And he will. And you go, wow. And you know, as you do this, you're going to experience what Noah experienced. You're going to live on a planet filled with 7 billion people who only think about wickedness continually, and yet you're not going to lose the plot. Because you're going to be nourished in your soul. God gives grace to the humble. He's going to flood your soul with stability. He's going to satisfy you. He's going to make you lie down in green pastures. Do you see that? The humble get grace, and you're going to make it. What James said in James chapter 4 is true. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's all humility now, because it's all grace in the future and all glory. Everybody with me? Okay, let's pray. We're going to have a time of communion. We're going to pass out the elements. We're going to hold on to them and take them all together. And we just get to think about this, that you, Jesus, died for us, the just for the unjust. And we praise you and thank you that your humility saves us. And I would hope that each one of us want to receive Jesus and keep receiving him and just say, Lord, please humble me and make me like Jesus. I don't want to go to the place of the dead. I want to be in your presence where there is fullness of joy, life forevermore. Come and make your home in me. And this morning as we, we have communion, please wash and cleanse and draw each one of us close to you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.